Oh, good morning to each and every one of you. So glad you're here in the house of the Lord. And I look forward to meeting you after the service and greeting you and perhaps getting to know you a little better. You know, so we begin the uh, reflecting back over 2014. It's almost becomes a ritual, doesn't it? You know, you sit down maybe over a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, your favorite dessert, and you sit there and you say, okay, let's take a look at what happened in 2014. And uh, so there are many areas of our lives that we probably could have done better, more than likely. Uh, there are probably resolutions that we made in January 2014 that we sincerely wanted to keep, right? Probably all of us had those. And there are goals, dreams, and hopes that we wanted to come true. Now, praise God, some of those things came true. Some of those things actually happened, and we praise God for that. And there are probably some that have been forgotten and some that have been forsaken <laughs> also. And so we have to deal with those as well. Uh, perhaps for some of us, it was the idea that, okay, this year, 2014, I'm going to do a better job of overcoming this sin. Or I'm going to do a better job of sharing Christ with people. Or I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Perhaps we had all of those kinds of dreams. But for many believers, the idea of health, having a healthy spiritual life is really um, only that. It's a dream. Uh, for some people, having a healthy spiritual life is almost like, oh, I don't know, winning the World Cup. Okay, it's like winning the World Cup for some of us. Uh, having a healthy spiritual life is like uh, winning the Nobel Prize, winning the Nobel Prize for some of us. Perhaps uh, having a healthy spiritual life is almost like getting perfect scores on your PSLE, your O exams, your A exams, something like that. All right. And we can go on and on and on and on. But the point is, it just seems so far out. It just seems so unreachable, some so unattainable. And so what happens is all of us go to plan B. And plan B is, oh, that's just the way it is, you know. And so we get into this funk and we begin the hopes and dreams turn into recurring nightmares. Become recurring nightmares. Spiritual lives become boring and burdensome as they become just an empty ritual every week. And then prayer loses its importance. It is only a necessity in times of crisis. You see, you see the spiral, you see the pattern, see how things begin to happen. Bible reading is pushed aside for more urgent headlines. All right, more urgent headlines. And then spiritual character building is dismissed and hypocrisy becomes the accepted norm. You see, we stop complaining. We stop noticing. We stop, you know, uh, figuring out what's good and what's bad in our life. And then commitment and service begin to wane as more opt to be consumers rather than be contributors. Okay? So all of these things begin to happen. And um, we fool ourselves into believing that the being committed and serving is only for the dedicated ones. Those who are called, you know, those who are gifted. We forget that God has gifted all of us. We forget that God has called all of us to uh, be committed and to serve him. The ranks of the served swell while the ranks of the serving shrink. You understand that? See, that's what happens. That's what can happen to us individually. And that's what can happen to us as a church. And so we have to be aware that this exercise, this ritual of reflecting back has great impact. 
because it not only affects your spiritual life and my spiritual life, but all of our spiritual lives together as part of the GBC family. So I don't want to discourage your reflection time. In fact, I want to encourage you to do this. But I want you to be encouraged to do this in a slightly different way. We want to examine this whole idea of how to be more faithful and fruitful in our spiritual lives. And so I'm not here to scold you this morning, but I'm here to help you this morning, if you'll let me. And we'll go to the Word of God to find our ultimate help. And this is found in John chapter 14 and 15. John chapter 14 and 15. Now, if you're ever going to read a part of the Bible as a believer, then probably John 14 and 15 are two of the most crucial chapters you ought to read. Because in those two chapters, you find out what God, what Christ had in mind when he left his disciples. And that's what's exactly happening here. For several chapters, Christ has been preparing his disciples for his leaving. He's saying, look, I'm not going to be here all, 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 you know, with you all the time. But when I leave you, this is what I am going to provide. And so by chapter four, for example, by chapter 14, he comes right out and tells them that he is leaving. And then he goes out to comfort them in verses 25 through 31. Now, we're not going to read all of those verses there, but let me summarize them for you. Jesus comforts his disciples. I am leaving, but this is what he does. He, he is promising a person to help in verses 25 through 26. And this is the Holy Spirit. He says, look, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not just going to pack my bags and go and you'll never see me again. He says, no, 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 no. I am going to provide the Holy Spirit for you to teach and remind you all that I have said. And then he's going to give them his peace. He's going to give them his peace to deal with their fears. Verse 27 through 28a. And we know from that that what he means is, look, living the Christian life is not going to be easy. It's going to be fraught with all kinds of fears and doubts and things. But I am going to give you my peace to get you through all that. Verse 27. And then, he, lastly, he draws attention to his own personal example in verses 28 through 31. It's almost like he's saying, look at all I've gone through. Look at all I've gone through. And if I can get through it, you can get through it too. You can get through it too. So he is dead serious about um, their, uh, uh, making the most of their uh, spiritual lives each and every day. And so he begins to do that. Now, why is that important to us? Because as Christians, sometimes we are content to settle for the minimum instead of reaching to achieve our full potential that God has for us. In other words, we're ready to settle for the ordinary instead of the extraordinary. We are willing to settle for the being comfortable instead of being challenged. We don't have all the details, but we can pretty much be sure that God wants us to be active and not passive. You see, but most of us opt for the passive route. OK, I just want to get along to get along. That's all. I just want to do the bare, bare minimum, you know. And so that's how we go about carrying on our spiritual lives. And God comes back and he says to us, no, he says, no. He wants us to do much more than that. So if we want to do much more than that, then we have to make resolutions. We have to have hopes. We have to have dreams. We have to have goals. Okay. 
But the question is not making them, it's keeping them <laughs> and seeing them through, right? Right? Any one of them. I give you a piece of paper, I give you a pen, write down 10 resolutions. You guys will have it done in 30 seconds, okay? But if I said, now let's keep them, <laughs> that's a different matter, you see. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Past experiences tells me that three important things have to happen if we are going to keep resolutions. If we're going to keep resolutions, if we're going to make those hopes and dreams for our spiritual lives come through those three things is we have to deal with what I call the I statements, the I statements. What are the I statements? The I statements is I can't. The I statement is I won't. And the I case I statement is I will. You see, if you can get a handle on all three of these, you are well on your way to keeping your resolutions for the new year and any other time that you make them. And so that's where we are today. God wants us to make the most of our lives today and tomorrow. And this is how we can do it. And we go to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And we'll cover verses 1 through 11. I mentioned those three I statements. The first one was I can't. I can't. And this is solved because of God's role in making believers fruitful. In making believers fruitful. Look at verses 1 to 3. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. What is he saying here? He identifies two very important people. He identifies Christ as the vine and God as the vine dresser. Now, God identifies, Christ identifies himself as the true vine. Okay, you have, a, you have this wonderful grapevines. I went to Israel and I saw them. And, you know, we're used to thinking of these scrawny little, you know, <laughs> we think this, the grape, grape plants are very small and everything. They're huge. They're humongous. They have huge trunks and thick branches. And so when he brings up this visual, he is really just calling attention to something quite major. And he says, I am the true vine. I am the branch. I am the true vine from which all the branches will come. And then he says, God the Father is divined as the vine dresser. Now, when I was young, I thought vine dresser must be wine maker. You know, that, that must be who this guy is, you know. No, vine dresser is somebody very different. He is the fellow, he's the farmer who tends to the vines, making sure they're healthy, growing, and fruitful. All right? And how does he do this? One of the major things he says, God the vine dresser prunes in verse 2. Okay, he prunes. And this word literally means to take away. He removes the unproductive branches, okay? He removes them. He prunes, it says, a process to cleanse and purify. Now, why is this so important? Because have you ever seen a plant? Have you ever seen a plant? You know, they have all these branches. They have good branches. They have bad branches. The bad branches just sort of hang on. And they suck all of the nutrients. They suck all the healthy stuff, all the good stuff. And so what happens is that leaves less for the healthy parts. So what is the common sense thing to do? You cut the unhealthy branches so that the healthy branches can have all the nutrients and continue to grow and to produce. 
And so that's what the vine dresser does. Good pruning can make a difference between a poor crop and a great crop. Okay? So you get this picture. Christ is the vine. God is the vine dresser. He's going about pruning. Now, in verse 3, it tells us that God, the vine dresser, prunes us. He prunes us. Now, you say to yourself, what's so hard? You know, give me a pair of scissors. Give me a knife. Give me a machete. You know, give me some. I'll just go out there and whack my way around and, and, and everything will be happy. Everything will be fine. But, you know, vine dressing is a skill. It's a skill. And what is involved in this skill is it takes years for people to learn how to uh, do the pruning properly. How do they do it? Well, they have to know which branches to trim. They have to know how to trim these bushes, when to trim these, uh, these branches. In fact, I actually learned when I was in Israel and asking the guy, you know, he was reading to us out of uh, John chapter 15. He says, well, what's this big deal about pruning? He says, not only they spend years learning how to do it, they have to cut it just at the right angle. Because if they don't cut it at the right angle, then the pruning doesn't happen properly. And it can mess up the whole the whole plant. And so this is very important. So God is a skilled vine dresser. Make no doubt about it. All right. He knows what he is doing. How does he do it? Verse 3 tells us he uses his word to prune. He uses his word to prune. Gives us the word. He says, hey, better take care of this part of your life. And you better address this issue in your life. And things like that. Now, I know you guys have been in this church a long time. And you've heard many, many sermons. You've heard better sermons than I can ever give. But the fact of the matter is, the word of God in and of itself is very, very powerful. The word of God in and of itself. How powerful is it? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. You see, the word of God can fulfill all of this and more and all of this and more. Well, you're sitting there and you're looking at me and you're saying, well, yeah, that's all well and good, Pastor. But uh, is it enough? Well, if you look at Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, for this is talking about the word of God for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, I don't know too many (laughs) things that are able to get to the heart, but the Word of God can. We can fake everybody out. We can fake everybody out. We can fake out uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, lie detector machines. We can do all of that. But you can't fake out the word of God. The word of God goes right to the heart. It goes right to the point of the matter. That's how powerful the word of God is. So when we submit ourselves to God's word, God might convict us of certain attitudes and actions that would discredit our testimony and perhaps turn people away from God. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, it says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only as such a word as is good for edification, building up according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And so perhaps, perhaps, 
We read this. We hear this. And we understand that we have gone through a season of a hypocritical spirit. Nothing is right. Nobody is good. Nobody's doing it right. And so we are quick to point that out to everybody. The word of God comes into our life and says, hey, 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 wake up. It says, let all your words be for edification. Whoa, okay, right, got it, God. I'm on my way. You see, it might happen that way. So you see God, you see God at work. He's pruning our lives. He's, he's taking away things and he's doing that. God is actively at work in our lives, taking away the good to make way for the best. Believers fail to spiritually grow because they think, I can't. I can't overcome this sin. I can't change. They forget that God is passionately pruning and working in their lives. And as painful as it might be sometimes, God God is working hard to help us. So that we cannot say to God and we cannot say to ourselves, I can't. I can't. can't say that. Because why? God is at work in our lives. He is at work pruning and he is at our work trying to prepare us to be more fruitful. And so that's how we can overcome the I can't. I said there was a second one. What was it? The second was I won't. The second was I won't. You know, uh, I have a lot of children, you know, and and I've seen a lot of I won'ts in my time. All right. And you never deal with a two year old or three year old, you know, and you ask them to do something. You know, I mean, that's a shock to the system. Right. I mean, you say to yourself, me, parent, you, child, you obey, you know, and the child looks at you, you know, what are you going to do? You see, it says, I won't spirit. Well, the believers, this is overcome by the believers role in making themselves fruitful. Making themselves with. See, it's not only God at work, but it's also something we have to do. What is it that we have to do? Well, this is found in verses 4 to 6. In verses 4 to 6 in John chapter 15. And so what do we find? We find, first of all, that it talks about a concept called abiding. Abiding. Now, I admit to you that the word abiding, when's the last time you, you, you used the word abide? Not too long ago, right? <laughs> you haven't used it. Where does the word abide mean? Literally, it means to remain. And as you follow this word, you find out that it really means to stay connected, to be in intimate fellowship with Christ. Okay? This is the whole point of abiding. He says, abide in me. What he's saying is stay connected to me. Stay intimately connected to me. It's an important concept. The Holy Spirit guided the Apostle John to use it 11 times in this chapter alone, and then 40 times in his gospel, and 27 more times in his epistles. So do you think that John had a message from God to give to us? He sure did. And it had to do with abiding. And what do we learn about abiding? If you look at verses 4 and 5, we'll read this. Abiding is essential and it is not optional. Okay? It is essential. It is not optional. 
And look at verse 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, you know, sometimes you look at the examples that the Bible gives you, you say, that's rather obvious. I mean, you see branches, if they're disconnected from the tree or from the plant, they're dead usually, right? They're usually pretty lifeless and fruitless. But the point, that's exactly, Jesus' exact point here is that we have to stay connected to him, intimately connected with him. Believers fail to be fruitful because not only do they think I can't, they also think I won't. I won't stop the sin. I won't change. They fail because they stop staying in close contact with Christ, eventually resulting in rebellion and disobedience to the Lord. And this is probably one of the most common scenarios in the spiritual world. Is that people don't stop believing because they don't understand something. The thing is they stop believing and stop growing because they've stopped being connected to Christ. And pretty soon the word of of God um, and the people of God and the plans and purposes of God fade and these people end up choosing their own path or purposes. And that's when the I won'ts come in, you see. No, I read it. I understand it. I've heard it before. I don't want to do it. And I won't do it. It's kind of like that two and three year old. <clears throat> I don't want to do it, you see. We don't maybe act that way to God. We're a little more diplomatic. But we just tell God, no thanks. You know, something like that. But the spirit is still the same. I won't, I won't, I won't. And this is where if we were to change all of that, then we would be able to overcome that. What else can we learn about abiding? If you look at verse 6, verse 6 tells us that abiding is for true believers. True believers. Verse 6. It says there, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, I do know that there are many different interpretations of this verse. And so I'd like to present those and then also give you what I think is the, is the plausible view, uh, probable solution to this. One of the views says this. Some say that the branches mentioned here are Christians who lose their salvation. Oh, yeah, I read that there. Yeah, that could be true. They could be Christians who, uh, you know, lose their salvation. However, that would run contrary to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And I don't think John would be writing his gospel and be inconsistent. So John chapter 10, verse 27 through 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never, what? Perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So all this talk about being burned and all this other stuff, that sounds like perishing to me. But the Bible says, no, I don't think they're going to perish. Well, what's another possible view? Another possible view says that these branches are Christians who lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. But they keep their salvation. Well, is that the answer? 
No, not really, because if you look at this verse carefully, the verse actually refers to the actual person and not to the works of the person. It doesn't say the works will be burned up, it says the person will be burned up. Okay? So you're stuck again. So what's a, what's a probable answer to this, okay? Now, you know, don't take me to the cross on this, but I'm pretty sure that this is, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty close to what's, what's happening. It's probably what's happening. Hence, the branches are probably individual, individuals who profess Christ as their Savior, but really did not possess a genuine faith in Christ. Why? Because this fits the scenario described and other passages of Scripture. You see? And so when it says that they're thrown away, the branch dries up, and they gather and cast them into the fire, they are burned. Who are these people? These are probably people who feel and profess, yes, I'm a believer, yes, I'm a believer, yes, I go to a church, yes, I'm a member of this, I was baptized on this day, all these kinds. But deep down in their heart, they have not quite fully understood what the gospel is, or, or perhaps they understood what the gospel is, but they haven't fully embraced it. But for whatever reason, they run around professing to be uh, followers of Christ. Now, this has deep applications for those who are not yet believers. It is important that you truly possess Christ and not just profess belonging to Christ. Do you really trust Christ as your personal Savior? Do you? For example, do you acknowledge you are a sinner deserving the wrath of God for your sins? Do you? Do you acknowledge that? Do you say, yes, I do. And then do you believe that Christ's death and resurrection from, your, uh, from the grave uh, provides forgiveness of your sin and eternal life? Well, yeah, getting closer, getting closer. Number three, do you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior and Jesus alone? You see, have you done that? Well, I think I have. You probably have, but you just need some assurance. And so that's good. So after the service, come and see me or see one of the pastors. See what, Go see an usher and he'll lead you to an elder and we'll be able to help you and pray with you. And so remember, God can tell the difference between the true and the false branches. And so I encourage you to become a real branch if you're not or if you're in doubt. If you need help, come and see us and we'll make sure that that happens. You see? But the stakes are high, folks. The stakes are high. You go through life and you think you you have all of these things. And then you get, get there to, the, you know, the judgment seat. And you find out your name's not written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh-oh. Messed up again. <laughs> you see? But the consequences are eternal, not temporal. You see? I had a dear friend of mine. And... Uh, uh, he was a classmate. We were taking a class against us. Hey, what church do you go to? And he mentioned this church. And uh, the church in town had a pretty uh, a reputation of being very liberal and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, very uh, un-gospel-like, if you will. And, and so I said, why are you going to that church? He said, let me tell you, Arnold. He said, it's great. Because I go in there. And these people don't know what the gospel is. And a lot of them are unsaved. And man, they're coming to Christ by the droves. I said, wow. You see? And unfortunately, that's the case in many, many churches, many fellowships and things like that. Is that there are people who 
profess to be Christians, but they, they don't truly possess the Christ. And so this is becomes very important to us. So if I'm going to overcome the I won't, then I have to make sure that I understand that my relationship to Jesus Christ is all important, is all important. I am the vine. You are the branches. OK, and branches cannot survive without vines. All right. So that's the connection. Now. Let's hurry on then to the last one. Sustaining I will. Sustaining I will. And again, sustaining I will it comes under the believer's role in making themselves fruitful. Okay? Making themselves fruitful. And this is verse 7 through 11. We made it perfectly clear that, we made it perfectly clear that the believer's role in, uh, make, uh, for making the most of today and tomorrow is abiding in Christ. Staying intimately connected with Christ. Got it? Yeah, staying intimately connected to Christ. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this. If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Okay? Now, what he's saying there is abiding through prayer. Abiding through prayer. Some of you are wondering, why did Chong Tian uh, uh, flash up those booklets on prayer? It's because in 2015, we want the church to be actively involved in prayer. Okay? Actively involved. Heavily involved in prayer. All right? And so we're going to try and do everything that we can to get everybody off to a great start and sustain them through it. And so there are these resources, both on the web and both in hard pages. And so when believers abide in Christ, Christ's words are in them and they pray according to the Father's will and God will answer them. Now, it's important here at this point to slow down and examine that phrase, whatever you wish. Okay? First of all, understand it's predicated on Christ and his words. So don't be going off there asking him all kinds of foolish things, okay? <laughs> you know, God's not, probably God is not as concerned about some things to get as we are, all right? And there's some priorities that he has. And so those are found in Christ's words. So what you wish will be along the lines of what Christ wishes. Number two, God giving us what we wish includes a whole range of answers. A whole range of answers. For example, did you know no is an answer? <laughs> no is an answer. People say, I didn't hear from God. God doesn't answer my prayer. No, he answered it. He said no. <laughs> that's an answer. All right. What else could there be? Could be yes. Oh, that's great. Those are the best ones. you like, yes. And then it could also be uh, other than that. It could be uh, not now. Not now. You've heard that one before, okay? Yes, no, not now. But I got another one for you. The other one is, I got something even better. I got something even better. Oftentimes, you know, we pray to God and we say, Lord, you know, we play the humble card. Oh, Lord, I'd just be happy if you give me a car, you know, just four wheels, you know, the steering wheel, brakes would be nice, you know. And, and we tell God that's all we want, you know. So God goes off and gives us an Audi for A5 or something like that, you know. Whoa! See, God sometimes does that. He says, I got something better for you. I got something better for you. And it doesn't have to be something material. It could be something else. It could be peace in the midst of some kind of chaos. It could be some kind of um, ability to present when, when you really felt you weren't prepared. Things like that, you see. 
And so God says, I got something better for you. Know that God will answer our prayers with what is good. Motivates us to say, I will, I will, I want to do this. I will triumph over sin. I will follow the Lord. I will change because God is with me. It's through prayer. Also, how can we sustain the I will? Abiding produces thinking, knowing that abiding produces fruit that glorifies God. And look at verse 8. My father is glorified by this. By what? That you bear much fruit and so prove yourselves to be my disciples. Okay? Now, this whole passage has been talking a lot about fruit. What is fruit? The fruit here is the fruit that glorifies God. What are some examples of that? It can be good Christian character found in Galatians chapter two, verse Galatians chapter five, verse twenty-two and twenty-three. It could be that. It could be godly conduct as found in Ephesians five, eight through ten. These acts of goodness, righteousness, and truth that can happen. You see. I don't want to limit it to a specific less. And you say to yourself, oh, that's not on the list. So I'm not going to produce that. All right. But it's a whole range of things. But the point is that it glorifies God. It glorifies God. And so when you and I are looking to have a fruitful life, it's with the intent that whatever we do glorifies God, that it glorifies God. And if I know that I'm involved in something such so worthwhile as to be glorifying God. I am motivated. I am motivated to do it because why? I know it's right. I know it is right. I know that God can use this to touch many people and make a big difference. I am motivated. My I will is sustained by prayer. It is sustained through knowing that the fruit in my life will glorify God. Another thing. Abiding in Christ's love for us leads to obedience to his commandments, which results in our joy being made full. This is verse 9 through 11. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love, it says there. And it says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. Wow. Is there something at the end of the rainbow that's worth it for me to to believe that I will? I will do these things. I will accomplish these things. Yes. It is abiding in Christ's love. Staying convinced. That and committed that Christ loves us. We have to remind ourselves of his love for us. And this leads to keeping his commandments in verse 10. And so we obey because of the love that Christ has for us. But also notice, also notice in chapter 14, verse 15, just across the page. What does it say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we prove that we love God? How do we prove that we love Christ? By keeping his commandments. By keeping his commandments. You see? And so it goes both ways here. It goes both ways here. And then at the end of it all, he says in verse 11, that we may receive his joy in us and that our joy may be made full. Early on in my ministry, 
one of our dear, uh, the wives of one of our deacons, one of, we had deacons in our church, and one of the deacons came up to me one day. And she said, can I be frank with you? And I, and I looked at this person and said, you're always frank with me. You know, if I, even if I said no, you're going to be frank anyway. So let it fly. All right. And so she looked at me in the eye and she says, you are the most grumpy pastor I've ever met. <laughs> grumpy pastor. It's like grumpy cat. Any of you see grumpy cat Christmas? Yeah. You know, and 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 I, <laughs> I was taken back, you know, and I, I said, well, OK, can you help me understand this? Give me some example and she went on she had not one example but many examples and 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 she said you are the most grumpy pastor i've ever met you know you don't exhibit any joy of the you know there's joy 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 in serving jesus i don't know you lost it somewhere you know this kind of thing and so i went back and i talked to my wife about it and my wife you know being very diplomatic says well there might be a point there and uh and and so I, I said, okay, I better get before the Lord. I got before the Lord, and I started examining myself. And I said, I can be more joyful. I can be more joyful, you see. And so, you know, then I started, you know, studying in Scripture. I started reading books. I started talking to people. And I especially talk to people who are joyful all the time. And, I, you know, how do you look at life? How do you handle the heavy, heavy burdens? And they're sharing with me, you know, you know, this, that, you know, their prayer life and, you know, the strength they find in the Lord and all this kind of And I began to start putting that into my life. And I have to say, you know. I think I have more of the joy of Jesus in me now today than I did back then. You know? And so if I come up to you and you see me smiling, don't punch me in the face or walk away from me. You know? But accept that, that it's the joy of the Lord. And it says, and the joy of the Lord will be made full. And I have said this before and I'll say it again. In Singapore, there needs to be more joy. There needs to be more joy. You know, some of you haven't smiled so long, your muscles have atrophied. You know, your smile muscles have atrophied. There's no joy in your life. You see, and how do we do that? By abiding in Christ. By abiding in Christ. Okay, so here we go. We're going to wind this up now. Maximizing today and tomorrow. Okay, you and I can make the most of our spiritual lives today and tomorrow. How? I, I strongly suggest and advise you to re, go back and reflect and revisit your past resolutions, hopes, and dreams for the Lord. Go back and reflect on them and revisit them. Don't be scared of them. Just face them. Go back and face them. Pull out that piece of paper or pull out your iPad, notepad, and lily pad and everything else and bring it out there and say, what did I promise back in January 2014? And then if you have to renew previous ones and make new ones with confidence. Okay? Make new ones if you have to. That's a true possessor of Christ as your Savior. Be determined to become a fruitful branch. Okay? In fact, one that produces much fruit. You know, you're going to sit there and you're going to say to yourself something like this. You know, I can't, I won't, you know. But I really encourage you to adopt. I will. I will. I will. And then as a true disciple of Christ, determine in your heart to allow God to do his part in your heart to cleanse and purify you. To prune those parts of your life that keep you from being faithful and fruitful. 
Allow God to come into your life and prune and cleanse it. Want it. Welcome it. Don't fight it or resent it. You know, oftentimes I'm ashamed to say, you know, what do we do? We, we go up there and we say, God, I invite you to come, you know, examine my heart, oh Lord, you know, right? You know, we sing the song and, you know, and search my heart, oh Lord, and all this kind of stuff. And the minute he does, the minute he does, we say, I'll have nothing to do with this. I don't want anything to do with this. Right? Isn't that the way it usually works? Okay, because we don't want God rummaging around too much into our business. We don't want him rummaging around into our life. And so we don't want him messing things up because we got it just the way we want it. Don't fight it. Welcome it. Want it. Don't resent it. As a true follower of Christ, determine in your heart to abide in Christ's love by obeying his commandments. Stay connected to Christ through obedience of his word. Okay? You know, that can't be emphasized enough. There's more to God than Ten Commandments. Did you know that? There's more to God than Ten Commandments. There's a whole bunch of good things in here that we need to take heed to. And then let that wonderful transformation to be more like Christ begin in your life. Okay? So God wants us to make the most of our spiritual lives today and tomorrow. That is for sure. We can if we will overcome the thinking, I can't and I won't. We will if we move to thinking, I will. And then allow God to prove our lives and we abide in Christ. You know, I'm not God. And I am thankful I am not God. Because some of the stuff that he sees, I would never want to see. (laughs) Okay. Some of the stuff that he sees. But just for a moment, if I were God, I would like to know, what are you thinking right now? What are you thinking right now? Are you thinking to yourselves, I can't? Are you thinking to yourselves, I won't? Or are you thinking to yourself, I will? That would be really interesting. But because I can't know what's going on in your mind, and God does, I will leave it to God. God is waiting. God is waiting. He's waiting for you to make up your mind. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to your word. It's truth. It's clarity. It's so profound. Lord, we thank you for wanting us to be faithful and fruitful. Help us all to get off to a great start and to finish the year well. Dear Lord, Help us to move from I can't, I won't, to I will. In Jesus' name, amen.